0: This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It is meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Aegis and your host on the Super Age Show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to InsideTracker.com/ages save twenty percent on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by SRW. Aging is inevitable, but how we age is chiefly a matter of our choices. If you go to SRW.co, you can save twenty percent on all their products by using the code Aged Twenty at checkout. Welcome to episode 125 of the Super Age podcast. It is great to have you with us. This will be dropping on March the 15th 2023. today we're coming to you from the snowy very very snowy mountains of Utah where it is once again snowing. <laughs> it's astonishing I I don't even know what to say about this winter uh, you know some of the ski resorts it's like 500 600 seven inches 700 inches of snow. It's a lot of snow, (laughs) Um, which makes the mountains beautiful. But you know, it seems like spring is about to be sprung. There is, you know, we're seeing the birds again, and the animals are sort of coming out. And they're, I mean, if you're an animal and you've like hibernated this long, and you go out and you're like, oh my god, there's seven feet of snow in front of my burrow. Hmm, Yeah, but um, spring will be here soon, and I think things are going to get pretty sloppy here for a while Um, tonight, which will probably be after this podcast drops, um, we're doing a small ageist event here in Park City, Utah. So, you know, I don't know, 50, 80 people, we'll see who shows up. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we talk here about on the Super Age podcast. And it's really an opportunity to just meet people and get some of the disparate communities here together. Because, you know, being in a town like this people tend to stay siloed within their interests or sports or, you know, whatever it is they're doing. Um, And, you know, we have an opportunity tonight to sort of pull people together and say like, hey, um, here's this interesting person and they're doing whatever. So that's gonna be really fun tonight. We haven't done an event since pre-COVID. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I think a lot of my fellow Masters ski race folks are going to be there. And it's an opportunity to see Like what people look like, you know, the thing about skiing is, and I think it's one of the reasons famous people like skiing, like, you know, Madonna, Brad Pitt, people like that, they love to ski because you're entirely covered up. You're like in this costume and like, I, I, there's no way I would recognize people that I'm with, you know, five days a week for three months out on the streets. (laughs) We get to see what everybody looks like. And this is going to be really fun. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Today on the show, we are honored to have Andrew Scott. And Andrew Scott is a professor of economics at Oxford and London School of Business. He's written a number of books on, you know, sort of the economic implications of age, one of which is called The Hundred Year Life, which he wrote together with Linda Grattan. And it sold over a million copies. I've read this book It's a fantastic guide, really, to how to you know what's gonna happen with a hundred year life? And for you personally, if you're gonna to live to a hundred years, how should you be thinking about your future? And there's some wonderful stuff in there about asset classes. And this is one of the main reasons I wanna have Andrew on today, because people think of asset classes of like, you know, how much is your house worth, how much cash you got in the bank, but there's a whole other grouping of asset classes that they point out in this book, you know your health, your network, your skills, all these other things that we really need to be thinking about if we're going to live a long time. So we're going to get with Andrew Scott in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by SRW Laboratories. Out of New Zealand, their vision is to extend human health span. SRW Labs curates the very latest in science and research to formulate premium nutraceuticals that support your cellular health especially as you age. Working with their scientific advisory board, they seek to understand and address the causes of aging at a cellular level, providing support across 12 bodily systems with an approach that is unique to SRW. They know that doing one thing well, such as eating healthily, won't have the desired effect on your health. This is why SRW seeks to educate people on the factors that influence aging and, more importantly, biological age. Use the code AGES20 at checkout and save 20% off any order. Go to srw.co.co, .code, not dot .com. Use the code AGES20 at checkout, save 20% on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the dashboard to your inner health. You know, we talk about this a lot, about metrics, what matters, biomarkers, The thing is, you can't take actions on things that you don't know about, and what you don't know about can hurt you. I use Tracker. I take their ultimate test four times a year. I look at their biomarkers. I see what's moving from quarter to quarter, so I can see if I've made changes in my program and my diet. Is there something that I need to adjust? And their food first, supplement second recommendations are great. I always share results with my doctor. And if there's something we need to go over, we do that. Go to InsideTracker.com slash Save 20% on all their products. Andrew, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Um, a very impressive book that I just finished reading, The 100-Year Life, that you wrote with um, Linda Gratton. Um, and there's so many things to talk about here. We could talk for days
1: uh <laughs> yeah, one of the ironies of writing about longer lives is you always run out of time in talking about it. It's quite
0: <laughs> well, I guess there's always more time to talk. Um so I wanted to ask you your uh, your expertise is economics, um, and there are a lot of implications. Let's first talk about um health span, lifespan, and economics. Um assuming um, health spans and lifespans do not improve. What happens? Well, we've got a problem.
1: Uh, so, I mean, it's funny, as an economist coming into this topic, I came into it because since undergraduate days, which is more than 30 years ago now, I've been writing about an aging society. And economics says, sees this as a problem. And an aging society basically is there's fewer people being born, more people living for longer. And that's a problem because old people need a pension, they get ill, they get sick. Uh, and they're just kind of a burden, basically. Uh, and so if you've got more of older, those type of people, then you've got an economic problem. And so it's invariably negative. And for me, the real challenge there is that it's very much focused on a demographic story, which is a change in the age structure of society. But of course, what we need to do is to change how we age. We need to age better. So rather than focus on, oh, there's more old people, I think we need to focus on, actually, given the phenomenal increases in life expectancy that have happened, we need to change how we age. We haven't really expected to reach into those older ages in the past. Of course, there's always been old people, but it's been a minority living to 80 or 90. But if you look at the data today in most rich countries, it's the majority who will be living to 80 or 90. So we need to age better and behave differently. And of course, if we living longer, and we can be healthier for longer, and we can be productive for longer, can be engaged for longer. That's a really good news story. And that was kind of where I got to in a lecture I'd give about this aging society. I think the second or third time I was giving it to London Business School. There's a chart right in the middle that just says, we're living longer. And on average, we're healthier for longer. And you think, how can this be a bad news story? It's surely a good news story. And And that was kind of the moment where I suddenly thought, ah, we're not focusing on how to change how we age.
0: Right. I think, um, you know, bad news sells. So, um, we're, the media uh, is invariably focused on um, social security system in America will collapse and these pension systems will collapse. Um, but I think, um, I, I had Dr. Mike Roizen on, I've had him on a couple of times. He's um, head of wellness at the Cleveland Clinic. And they've published some data where they think there's an eighty percent chance that for current fifty five year old the average life expectancy will be one hundred and fifteen. Yeah. Um, and these are sane, sober science people. <laughs> They're not kooks. And when I tell people this, they just sort of look at me like, you know, yeah, I was flying you know, I was promised a flying car too. I don't have that. But I, I mean, this seems pretty real to me.
1: Well, who knows? I mean, you know, this is where we get this huge debate about how long can we live for, etc. But, Hmm. you know, I certainly don't think we've reached a limit in terms of average life expectancy. And of course, one of the problems both in the US and the UK, where I live, is that actually life expectancy trends are stalling, not for Hmm. everyone. Uh, And actually they're slipping behind other countries. So certainly the scope for the US and UK to do better because we are below other countries uh, but certainly, if you look at higher income people, life expectancy continues to increase. And you know, I think I, I never quite know what to sort to, to do about those projections because we don't know. But mm-hmm. clearly, you know, for me, we're not even got the right practices for how long we can currently expect mm-hmm. to live, let alone how long we might live for. So there's an awful lot of change that we need to do in order to succeed. And I think you know, you're going back to what about bad news cells. You know, one of the challenges I, I find in this is you've got the bad news story of uh, too many old people, and you know, everyone on walkers and uh, dementia and care homes, etc. There's very few positive stories. Or we switch to stories about oh, I don't want to live forever, uh, and and I, I find that sort of a rather strange way of coping with what is a new reality of you know, the young and the middle aged have never been so likely to experience old age. So how we shift the agenda, I think that the root cause of all of this and where the negativity comes from is that, you know, societies and as individuals, I think we underestimate the capacity of later years. And if you do that, first of all, you get ageism. Uh, So you have things like the old age dependency ratio, which is this notion that everyone over 65 is dependent and ill and doesn't provide anything, which is clearly a version of ageism. Um, Or, as individuals, we sort of worry about getting old, which is interesting because, of course, we know from study after study that the worst time in terms of lifetime happiness is middle age rather than old age. But if we do underestimate our capacity in later years, we don't invest enough in our future. And I think at the heart of all this negativity is a notion that how we age is fixed. And I always say that really to understand life expectancy trends, there's two things you've got to try and understand. The first, and this is as an economist, it's about time. And you've got more time ahead of you. Whether you're 20, 50, or 80, you have more time ahead of you than past 20-year-olds, 50-year-olds, or 80-year-olds. So you have to invest more in your future. you just got a greater incentive to do it. Uh, and of course, if you invest more in your future in terms of your health, your finances, your skills, your relationships, you're likely to have a better future. You can't guarantee everything, but you're likely to do it. And we've never had such a high incentive to do it. The second thing is that it's about malleability. We can change how we age. Now, there may be limits to that process, or if you look at the breakthroughs that are happening in sort of the biology of ageing, you may say, there's no limits. We can live to be five, 600, who knows? But we know that how we age is malleable. We have friends that, you know, exercise well, eat well, sleep well, have good relationships, and they just age better. We know in the UK and the US that there are enormous differences in life expectancy between those with high income and those with low income. So put those two things together. Longevity is about having more time and age is malleable. And you've got, a, I think, the start of a positive agenda rather than a negative story. But we are so wedded to measuring age in chronological terms that we miss these opportunities because, of course, chronological age has two problems. One is it's backward looking. You know, I'm 57, by the way, so chronological age, I've got 57 years gone, but probably the most relevant number to me is not how many years I've had, but how many years I've got to go. And so, you know, the average Brit has never been so old, but never had so long left to live. I'm not sure I call that unambiguously an ageing society. The older I get, the more vehemently I say that. But, you know, with more years ahead, in some sense, I'm kind of younger. It would be the sort of the, the the cute way of saying it. And of course, the other problem with chronological age is it's not malleable. It's fixed. It's 12 months every year. But what we really care about is our biological age. So I say we're a site obsessed with chronological age, but we should be more interested in what's called prospective age, years to come, and biological age, how malleable we are. And I say once you grab hold of that, I think you see this topic very differently.
0: I, I I read this fantastic statistic the other day. Um, and, and I agree entirely with what you're saying. Really,, um, how we age is entirely behavioral based. And you know, we we, we there's always that often statistic. Uh, people quote, eighty percent of our health outcomes are um, behavioral, twenty percent is genetics. I, I think it's I think it's higher than that. i I read a statistic that identical twins, same genetic material, the average delta in mortality statistics is ten years. Wow. Ten years. Same yeah. genetic material. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. No, I mean I love that
1: twenty eighty quote. I have to say, I'm. I, it's such a valuable statistic. I think a lot of weight is borne by it. I'm not quite sure how true it is, but of course it's twenty percent genetic and eighty percent behavior and environment. So mm. it's a mixture. You know, it's obviously if you've got resources, you can do something about behavior, but the environment also matters a great mm. deal. But but totally, that then shows you just. How malleable things are. And and you know, in the the next book, which I'm just literally finishing off right now, I sort of have this sort of three-part argument. The first is, you know, given the probabilities, the young and middle-aged have never been so likely to become very old. And then we talk to people about becoming old or, you know, very old, living to 90s, 100 or 115. People are worried. They worry about outliving their health, their money, their purpose, their relationships. And if you put those two things together, you'd never be more likely to be old and you worry about getting old. Then the key question is, well, what are you going to do today to do something to make sure you get good, not bad outcomes? And that comes back entirely to your 80-20 number and the malleability of age, because you know, when it was a minority outcome becoming old, you didn't have to worry so much about it, but you do now. And you know, how do I make the most of that extra time by investing in it?
0: Okay. I'm I I think that we're already seeing when you're talking about malleability, um, I'm thinking about malleability also of we would think of life phases. And I and I think of sort of human lifespan as a slinky. And what's happening is we're pulling the slinky out. And, you know, as you pointed out in the book, people in their 20s now are living, you know, in a different way than we did in our 20s. And I, I'm convinced it's because of this, their awareness of the age slinky being pulled apart yeah
1: no no i i it's um i hadn't thought of the slinky metaphor but it's a nice one although i think the slinky is also getting a bit twisted in different ways but uh, but that's uh we're getting to do new tricks as well now so i I, I, as you've mentioned the book hundred year life written in 2016 and uh i it's you know i I, it's been a, a sort of a breakout success i think we're closing in on a million copies sold globally now which is wonderful and I certainly didn't uh, expect that to happen. And I think you know it's interesting too because the sales are sort of pretty constant if not picking up because this is a theme that's just getting stronger and stronger. Uh, and you know we are seeing changes happening. And one of the motiv- there are lots of motivations for writing but one was filling in that lecture that something was being missed in the aging society story. We weren't looking at the positives and the opportunities. <laughs> Um, but the other thing was also just looking at my kids who are behaving very differently. And in particular, my middle son, uh, Louis was just graduating then at 21 and he said, dad, I'm not going to get a job next year. And I was pretty upset about that. I'm not normally cross with my children. Not, well, yeah, not in a sort of major way. Uh, it took me a while to work it out and I suddenly realized, well, of course he's behaving differently because he's got this opportunity that people now call emerging adulthood and, You know, that that having more time, I think, is the key to understanding longevity because, you know, the statistic I often use is that there's a thing called best practice life expectancy. uh, And that's where the phrase 100 year life is kind of inspired by. And best practice life expectancy is the country at any point in time which has the highest average life expectancy. So today that's Japan. But of course, which country it is has changed over time. Sometimes it was Germany, sometimes Norway. And if you plot this best practice life expectancy over 150 years, it's increased by around two or three years every decade, which is an extraordinary statistic. Now, whether it can count at that rate, whether it slows down, much debate and fight. But if you step back and say, okay, what that means is, you know, every 10 years life expectancy increased by two or three. Every generation is living six to nine years longer than the previous one, 12 to 18 years longer than your grandparents' sometimes i say that in class and i kind of don't get the response i want so i say it's like your day going from 24 to 32 hours that's what it's like if every 10 years life is when it goes up by two or three and if your day went from 24 to 32 hours you would live your day differently now when i say to me what would you do they will say oh i'd sleep and i get that but i say well, when you know would you just eight hours at the end of the day be a bit of a boring way of spending it you know, for me, I'd get up earlier, I'd get out of, go to bed later, have a lovely sleep in the middle of the day, and I'd probably have five small meals rather than three meals. Three of them would still be called breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but they would change their timing and therefore I would restructure the day. And that is, I think, what we're seeing. But what we're seeing also a lot of is governments trying to preserve what we call in the book the three-stage life of education, work, retirement. And that, of course, was invented in the 20th century. You know, it's so interesting that we invented so many new aspects of time in the 20th century. We invented the weekend, for instance, It didn't used to exist before the 20th century. We invented teenagers. My father was born in 1925, although, of course, he was 13 and 14. He was never really a teenager. He was at work at 14. So we also invented retirement and pensioners. And what you're seeing governments around the world doing is try sort of just saying, oh my gosh, these long lives, they're causing a problem financially for us. We can't afford these pensions. Let's just raise the retirement age. But if that's all you do, if you stretch out that three-stage life, I think it becomes quite unappealing. You know, because if you're living to a hundred, which is not implausible given the you know the projections you made and we extend, then you're probably working to about 80 in uh, this three-stage life. And working nonstop from 20 to 80 in the same way, that sounds like a missed opportunity to me. So I I, I think, you know, it's another reason we get a little bit negative because we're focusing on the finances without thinking about the other ways of uh, making this longer life sensible.
0: Let's let's stay with the finances for a second Um, because we have all this talk of, um, you know, future governmental bankruptcy and one, you know, Generally, the conservative parts, of whatever government, they want to cut back on certain things and, you know, whatever. We'll leave that to them. But um, what are the say we added working? I'll just pick a number um, like two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we move from 65 to 67, something like that. What are the what are they going to be the effects on governmental finances? Because they're going to be collecting taxes on that money. That would seem to be a plus for them. Yeah
1: so let me give you a, a quick answer but let me give you the academic caveat which is that that's a really good question to ask but I'm not sure anyone's got a very good answer it's just why I'm trying to get to a good answer in my academic research but in general what you what the best I've seen uh, effort trying to answer says that every one year more of working by raising the retirement age generates about another one percent of GDP every year forever. whoa so that's, that's huge. a huge effect yeah it's a big oh effect God. and yeah exactly and you know I, I We'd certainly, you know, put for sort of um uh treat it with a slight pinch of sort that number, but I think that's the magnitude we should be looking at. Wow, now my challenge with that, I think, is that you, you know, one of the problems we've got with governments right now is they're all just raising the state pension age. Um, but if you look at the labor market, people start to leave work from age 50, and very rarely is that a choice. So, for me, the bigger challenge we've got is how do we keep people working mm. from 50 to the state pension age? And if all we do is keep raising the state pension age, we don't actually keep people employable and productive for longer. So there's lots to be done around health and education, I think, to realise that. But this is what you know, I and others call the economic longevity dividend. If we can make these extra years healthy and productive, not only are they good for us as individuals, they're great for the economy. Because you know the challenge you've got with a longer life is how to finance it. Mm. And whether you're the individual or the government, there's actually only three solutions. The first is you work for longer the second is you save more which the government is sort of taxing more or the third is you kind of invest in risky stuff and hope that it gets a higher rate of return but if you go through all of those three options it's pretty obvious that the main thing we have to do is work for longer and you know, I wish I could give you a better answer, but I mean, you know, I, I can't. Uh, that's sort of the way that it does. The good news is, you, for every extra one year of life expectancy, you don't have to work the whole extra year, so we do gain some time as well. Um, but we've really got to focus on that, and that's how we create these additional resources. And it's a really powerful lever. And of course, the more healthy we are, the longer we can work for. So, um, uh, yeah, now it's a really powerful even if you think about. Governments around the world, we, we take for granted that if you invest in the health and education of young people, it's good for economic growth. But somehow there's this big resistance—the notion that investing in health and education of older people is good for the economy. Uh, go figure.
0: Yeah, I—we um, could talk a lot about how it seemingly, um, you know, out in the world of media or government or any of that, people, anyone over forty is a liability. Um, and not an asset and i I just, yeah
1: <laughs>
0: get yeah. over that
1: <laughs> no it just the, it goes to this this point of just as a society, and I think you can us are particularly bad at it underestimating the capacity of older people
0: i I think one of the things um you know taking out this idea of I and I've talked to a lot of HR people um, and what we're seeing now is retention. Is the big thing, um you know, retention of skilled workers and that knowledge base, either institutional knowledge base or specific knowledge base, wants to the people want to retain. You know, the company needs to retain that, um and people, you know, may you know, we're seeing this idea of sort of phased retirement. Maybe you only want right. to work three days a week, but this could go on for you know, as you said, it all this sort of health underpins all of this. And assuming one is healthy, a lot of people really love what they do um, and they want to keep doing it. And, you know, there's this idea of that changes consumption patterns too. So we're going to be seeing, I think, not just added taxation benefits for the government, but like overall economic benefits. I mean, if you're talking about a 1% increase in GDP, that's I can't think of anything else that would push the needle like that. No, I'm mean, completely
1: <laughs> no. I mean it's I mean look at the um I looked at employment trends and so what you're seeing in the high income countries is a slowdown in productivity growth. So uh despite all these wonderful things about AI and tech, output per worker is really not growing very much. It's it's slowing down. So that more and more of economic growth comes from just employing more people. And if you look at the 10 years before COVID, uh, in America, three quarters of employment growth came from people aged over 55. Mm-hmm. In Europe, it was more than 100%. So the, um, the main driver of economic growth has been employment of older people. Now we've got to unpick that a little bit because there's two things happening. One is, you know, I said we're living for longer and so we're working for longer. So people at older ages are more likely to work. But then, of course, and particularly in America, there's the baby boomer generation, this really big cohort that are coming into older ages. But put those two together and older people are the main source of growth, which then, of course, raises the problem. What happens if they start to come up to retirement? And how we help people work for longer is is key. And in the way I, I see it, and I said earlier about that three-stage life, we can't just stretch it out. Mm. I think careers become multi-staged. So there will be times in your life when you're really focused on making money, working full-time. Other points where you might want a different work-life balance. Sometimes you might be salaried. Sometimes you might be freelance. It may be you're doing social entrepreneurship. But You'll see a career of different shifts and in different ways. But one of those things will be not always working full-time. And we're already seeing this enormous shift in retirement. It's not... I think we exaggerate, we exaggerate too much the impact of raising the state pension age because many people who enjoy their work and who are in good health, and that tends to be people with higher education, higher income, are just happily working for longer. You know, they want to. Engagement is really key for a sense of self worth, responsibility, and it even supports you living for, for longer. So, you know, that I think is a, is a really, really big shift. But we're then foreseeing that not everyone is retiring at the same age. Mm -hmm. Retirement is no longer a binary outcome of retirement, non-retirement. It becomes a little bit more flexible rather than discreet. And for me, if the 20th century, as life expectancy increased, we saw a lot of leisure happen after retirement. I think probably what we're going to see with these longer lives in the 21st century is as the retirement age rises to the extent there is a retirement age, we're going to take more leisure. This side of retirement, which is working flexibly, working part time, it could be a four day week, a two day week, and I think that's particularly appealing to older workers. I, I did some work recently with um Nikolai Moorback and Darren Asmogler from IT, and older people in particular value flexible work and autonomous work. And actually, the employment market is getting much more supportive.
0: I would, um say that that idea of, of essentially optionality and flexibility yeah. is now up and down the age column the yeah younger people that I know that is probably their primary value totally I, I
1: mean I, it's interesting so there's a, some, some work on this and it, you know if we look at what defines an age-friendly job and we built on the research and did some data work here um, it's things that everyone likes. So you find flexible working, autonomy, less physically demanding work, uh, all, all those things are important. But what is interesting, everyone likes them. Older people like them all the more than mm. other ages. Yeah. So uh and one of the things we found was that the labor markets become a lot more age-friendly in the sense there's a lot mm. more jobs with those characteristics. But actually, only about half of those age-friendly jobs are actually gone to older workers because graduates like them younger females like them so not all of those age 20 jobs actually gone to older people
0: yeah um i have this other idea that i want to run by you which is that we hear a lot about these and i've had a lot of people on the on the show talk about um, health span or perhaps lifespan extension technologies and at the moment these are some of these are rather exotic and expensive. But if we look back at access to, say, antibiotics um, or, you know, other forms of medicine, they quickly, um, it became a societal mandate um, mm-hmm. to do this. And my personal feeling is that, at and, and I would love for you to t- dispute this, is that, um, you know, yeah, there's Jeff Bezos and that sort of stuff going on now but that because there's an economic imperative um, for these technologies to be, um, you know, up and down the income ladder. Um, so, you, you know, um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I'd i, I so I've just been actually trying to think about this and write something on it for, for the next book. And um, at one level, I think it's great, you know, I, I think... Um, if billionaires are happy to subsidise uh, this research, and they seem very interested for numerous reasons in doing so. Uh, some, I'm sure, are self-interested in terms of their own lives, making large amounts of money, but also just changing the world and doing good for everyone. That's all great. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure there will be products and developments that happen from this. I don't know when. I'm too smart a forecasted to give you numbers and dates. Uh, but something will happen. But I also think... That there's a, there's also a problem because I think um, there's a lot of things we could do now that don't require billion dollars investment, yeah. and I think you know, you know there may be things like stem cell research which looks enormously promising, but I, I think that's going to take a long while to become cheaper. So I think we do need governments to step up more. And say, "Great, the billionaires are doing that. We can learn from that. But actually we're going to put a load of money into trying to find some cheap things that can be benefit of many, many people and that can add two or three years of healthy life to where we are right now. And uh, that's why I think, for instance, uh, the work near Bas is doing on metformin is very interesting. Now mm. whether metformin is or isn't this sort of wonder drug, what's nice about it is it's very cheap. You could take it mm. every day. And if it did work, it would be kind of like a statin or aspirin. It would be something that bestowed a long-term benefit at a cheap cost. And I think that's a really important place to begin. So I love the the exciting uh, pioneering research. I think that's great. But it will be biased, I think, towards those with the income and the resources. But I think there's loads of things we can do now to improve healthy life expectancy that may be hard, but not scientific hard like the food we eat uh like the, the you know the the air we breathe uh and,
0: and then plus things like potentially metformin i see uh, in the research we've done a, a couple of frictions um you're an economist so everybody is doing a cost benefit analysis and so they go into the grocery store and they say oh there's broccoli over here mm there are potato chips over here i'm not really sure that the cost of I me mean, because i don't like eating broccoli is really going to benefit me i may not really it may not have any impact yeah. i'm going for the potato chips because i know that works yeah um how does one uh, it's it's a belief system um how does one affect that
1: no i i, I think i so it's a really key thing so um i, I Done some work recently, uh, published in Nature Aging with Martin Ellison from Oxford University and David Sinclair uh, from Harvard Medical School, and it was trying to use economic tools to put a value on aging well. And we all know, you know, in some sense we know the answer; it's incredibly important. But but we were pretty impressed with the numbers that came out. You know, our calculations suggest that if uh, the US could age better, so you maintain your health for uh, better. Uh, in a way that uh, added just one year to life expectancy by aging more slowly, it's worth something like fifty trillion dollars to us in terms of welfare—not not GDP, just in terms of how we value the game. Staggering amounts of money, which would suggest we should be prepared to pay a lot for the broccoli rather than the potato chips. But my goodness, that's a hard decision, isn't it? So I think then the sort of the question is: How do we change that? And some of that is about awareness, uh, and I, I you know I don't. By saying that, I really don't mean to trivialise it. It's incredibly hard to raise awareness. Uh, There's a concept of longevity literacy that's doing the rounds that says, if I'm aware I'm going to live a long time, then I better make decisions today. But I think that is one of the challenges of dealing with longevity. We are not, as humans, hardwired to think long term. Just as humans, through evolution, have never been hardwired to age well, neither are we well inclined to think in longer term. So we have to develop that. And, you know, patience is a bit like any sort of muscle. It's a mental muscle, but it's still a muscle. You have to exercise it and develop it. But my goodness, it's hard. Then, of course, there's all sorts of things we can do which may require, uh, you know, nudges, uh, regulation, obesity taxes. I mean, there's a whole raft of issues here. But I do think we need to look at what is the relationship between what we eat and our health system and our health because right now there doesn't seem a great connection between either of them um
0: as someone who's spent considerable time in hospitals i can tell you there isn't yeah um well Ir- as the
1: film Airplane says, hospital is a place full of sick people you know it's um,
0: <laughs> they seem to be interested in keeping them sick yeah <laughs> maybe there's an economic incentive there yeah, uh, definitely. It, um paul irving who's um runs the mm-hmm. milken center for you probably know paul um Paul told me that the greatest increase in healthspan lifespan I want to say the last 50 years was around cessation of tobacco use. So yeah. that that was a that was a a big belief system change that was yeah. quite effective.
1: And if you think about it, you know it was a belief system but you know there was also enormous levels of taxation, restrictions mm-hmm. on advertising restrictions on point of sale. I mean really major major changes. Um, so, uh, you know, the implications of that in terms of how we tackle what we eat and obesity are pretty striking.
0: I, there are, um, you know, I would personally like to see, we, there's this drink that they sell in the supermarkets here called Mountain Dew. Mm-hmm. It's, um, uh, tremendous amounts of fructose and some flavoring and water, um, which just has horrific consequences yeah. mm-hmm. that we're even allowed to sell this stuff. I, I, I,
1: I don't yeah. get it. But, it. but it is going to be a, a challenge. And, of course, there's two challenges. How do we get everyone to uh, better internalise those choices? And that's mm-hmm. a huge ask. Yes. Uh, but also, of course, cheap food is a great thing for people on low income. So how mm-hmm. we actually solve that problem, I think, is also huge. Um, yeah. Because, uh, the, you know, there's a real correlation. If you want to eat non-processed food and uh which you know a variety of vegetables which is good for the gut etc you need time and you need money
0: yeah and i can see some of the personal freedom people um really like you know i want my mountain doing hot dogs okay (laughs) yeah yeah Uh,
1: and you can still buy cigarettes and you can still dry alcohol so uh, i yeah i and um you know i uh well, it you mentioned 8020 uh, 8020 rule i think is also quite a good one on nutrition i mean it's sort of if 80 of the time you can be in a good place and 20% of the time less a good place then overall that may be fine uh, but if you're 100% in uh, not a good place that's not good
0: um i, I want to bring something that, uh, up that i think is a little controversial um which is this idea of capital um capital compounding growth over time and this sort of age power disparity that that causes. So the older people, um, people with, you know, if you have a house, it's compounding in value. You get uh, tax benefits from that. If you own stocks of some kind, um, they're compounding. Uh, if you're a younger person, you don't. And if we're taking life expectancies longer, this age, I'm, Give me some pushback on this, please, Andrew. But I'm thinking the age power disparity gets worse.
1: No, I think it's a real problem. Um, and I think it's a complicated one because lots of different things to unravel. Um, so one is, you said, that, so one way to sort of not worry about it is to say, well, actually, we got this change happening and people used to think you'd live to 60 or 70 and now we're living to 80 or 90. And so things change. So, uh when you're 20, you don't buy a house as early as you used to because you're still learning about yourself. You haven't committed to a relationship. You've still got other things to do. So you marry later, you start your career later, you buy a house. So you, you just have debt for longer. Because but That's fine because you're working for longer. Uh, uh, and then you get the house later and everything's fine. But it all just happens later. And so in that world where all that's happening is that everyone's adapting to living longer Younger people have fewer assets. Older people have more assets. But the young will become old, and so it kind of all washes out because eventually, you know, the big change is the young becomes old, so you now become one of those later on. So that's one way not to worry about it. But then I think you've got to build a few other things on top of it, which is I think the young coming along now, those behind, let's say, Gen X, um, to use the horrible generational label, they're the first group who are coming along after a generation who are just hanging around for longer. They hang around for longer in politics, they hang around longer in work, and hang around longer in the housing market. And so that's a disadvantage they face. And so we already know they're going to have to sort of contribute to the gap in social security funding. They're going to to pay higher taxes. But this adjustment, they're the first ones having to come along behind it. And that's a problem. I think we really have to think about this, because one of my worries about when we talk about an aging society, we always think about older people. Mm. But if the thing that's really happened is the young will become the old, we have to think about everyone. And really there shouldn't be generational conflict in a world where the young now become the old, because we should understand each other much better. But we got these political problems. Then the third thing, which is different from those previous two, like it's just stretching the life course. I'm following after a generation who are living for longer. I, I give there, for instance, the advantage, the example in the UK of um Prince Charles becoming King Charles, but only the age of 73. I mean, he had to wait so long to be able to take that. But then the third thing is that um, an older generation become a gerontocracy and they say, hey, I've got this power. I'm going to use it to benefit me. That then becomes unfortunate. And we've got to really guard against that. And I think I can see that in a number of different areas. So, In adapting to longer lives, we've got to make sure we may have to change some rules. So what is interesting, in the United States, is you do have older leaders. I think, you know, Biden was 76 in the last election. Trump was 73. Um, That's kind of old. Now, I don't want to beat up about having old politicians, because if you look at the number of 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds in the US Congress and Senate, it's still less than the number of 80 and 90-year-olds in the population. So we've got to have all voices being listened to. But what is interesting is the U.S. has a tendency to growing at the moment towards older politicians. Europe doesn't. Europe's politicians have actually become younger. So the question is, why is that? Is there something about a two-party system? Is it something to do with the need to raise funds to run for president? But what is it that's leading to that bias in the U.S. And perhaps we might need to change some of the rules to ensure that we don't just have a bias towards uh, our older leaders. You know. I, No problems with older leaders, but you don't have a bias only towards them. So I think there are some changes that are required. I can also see in the labour market changes, because actually the labour market's working out very well for some older workers. University professors is probably one of them. You know, they're healthier for a long while, they've got tenure, they can carry on working for ages, but that's tough for those coming through at the bottom. So we need to tweak some other institutions to make sure we get this intergenerational equality. Um, And I don't mean that to take a pop at boomers or to say older people are are selfish. Um, Older, younger people, they're probably no more selfish than one another. Some are, some aren't. But we do need to be careful of these big societal shifts that are happening that we've never seen before in human history. And we haven't designed institutions to get the best out of it.
0: Thank you for bringing all that up. Um, it, it does, as you were saying that I, I did recall. Oh yeah, the European leaders, some of them are in their thirties and forties. Which are, well, the Finnish one got in trouble of going for a nightclub recently. Yeah, yeah, thirty-five. Which, I guess I love her. Yeah. She's great. <laughs> yeah. But Then in the U.S., it it's different, and I think that um, in the U.S., um, economic power equates to political power, and I and I and I think unfortunately what we're seeing here is a reinforcing of of this happening um but i don't i'm i'm not a politician i don't i don't know much about well, politics but that's what i see happening
1: i mean one way i think you could try and step uh, get rid of some of these issues is to have term limits which of course mm-hmm. the u.s has at a presidential level um and that's not an age limit that's just a term limit mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. you know i know this there's been suggestions recently of a sort of um mental adequacy tests for politicians above a certain age that i think is wrong i mean if you can have mental mm. adequacy tests just do it for anyone of any age uh mm-hmm. it seems a relatively good idea that whoever becomes president should be in reasonable health and mentally uh capable um but hopefully the, the electoral process sorts that out but but to target it just at a certain age category i think is wrong
0: agree agree that's ageism yeah um yeah uh the uh, one of the fabulous things that I love about um this the, the earlier book that you wrote with this idea of assets mm-hmm. the different I love this this is my yeah. favorite part of the book Good. is that pe- when people think of assets they just they immediately go for the you know how much money's in the bank how much is my house worth yeah. yeah. that's one of maybe 15 assets that you have yeah. and and how these you know the value of your productive assets, your your yeah. your network assets, your um, you know, your health is an asset and people don't think of it that way. I mean, they would think if you have a health um, issue, that's that's clearly um, an anti asset, but they don't think of health as an asset. And it's not approached that way. I, I think that's brilliant.
1: Thank you. I mean, and uh, I you know for me, I think that is the heart of that book because you know what that book says, okay, we're living for longer, And if you extrapolate these trends, the young today have a reasonable chance of living to a hundred. Um, how do you manage that? And as an economist, I sort of think about it in terms of assets. So what's an asset? It's something that you can build up over time that provides a flow of benefits over many periods. So it's not just something you eat today, for instance. And you can invest and build it up, but if you don't, it diminishes and depreciates. And as you say, we always think about finances. And you know, one of the things when I used to teach this stuff, uh, particularly to uh, uh, executive education—so sort of people uh, not doing degree but come visiting us for short courses from companies—is I'd sort of say, "Oh, you know, here's the life expectancy trends." And there was always a group, often sort of mid-fifty-year-old men, who would just go, "Oh shit." And you think, oh, well, I just told you you're probably living for longer than you thought. And you just sort of said, that's bad news. And it's exactly this, which is, I just got to keep working for longer. Uh, and, you know, again, that's a problem with governments. They just keep raising the state pension age. And although that solves the financial problem, it doesn't really lead to a good life. So the question is, how do I think about my broad portfolio? What should I be investing in? And so, in the hundred-year life, we we identify four different assets. One is your finances, and sure, money matters. Of course, it does. Um, but you don't want your money to drive your life. You'd rather your finances support the life that you want, uh, if you can do so. Yeah, you, you're going to have to work for longer. But there's these three other assets that are important. The first you mentioned is productive assets, which is your skills and knowledge. And if you are going to work for long, if you're going to be working in your seventies, you better make sure you've got the skills and knowledge to do that. You know, what can you learn at 20 that's still going to be relevant in 50 years time? So updating your skills and knowledge is really important. Then there was your vitality assets. And that's of two types. There's your mental and physical health. uh, And then there's your friends and relationships. And of course, study after study about what makes for a good life tells us it's relationships. It's, uh, what is it, the capacity to love and be loved. So you've got to invest in those. You can't buy a lifelong friend at 80. You can't buy a good relationship with your children at any age possibly, but it's certainly not in later life. So you've got to work on this all the way. Uh, and then we said there was this thing called transformational assets, which haven't tended to be very important in the past, but as life gets longer, you need it because it's your ability to deal with change and to transition because you'll see more shifts over your career, more changes in your life as life gets longer. And the key thing about those four assets, your finances, your productive assets, your vitality assets, and your transformational assets, is you know think of a dashboard uh, with a sort of a dial on them, like like a gas dial. You don't want any of them to go on the red, because then you've got a problem. If you run out of money, run out of health, run out of relationships, run out of uh, ability to change, you've got a bad life. So you've got to keep investing in them, but I can't think of a single job that enables you to invest in all four of them at the same time. Um, you know, if you're building it in money, work hard, intense job, stress. But I've got my finances, but it's not doing your health and your relationships any good. So that's where we got the concept of the multi-stage life because it's very hard to build up all those assets, but you've got to build up all four to cope with this longer life.
0: That's right. I I want to say I've I've bought your book, and it's mandatory for anyone who works in my company to read this book, (laughs) no matter what age they are. To Brilliant. understand this, yeah, um, uh, no, it's amazing the impact that book has
1: had on people. I, for most of my career as an economist, I've been speaking about what's going to happen to the Fed funds rate or the Chinese <laughs> renminbi. Uh, uh, but with this book, people come up to me and say, "I've read your book and it's changed my life." Which, at first, I would find rather terrifying because no one ever did that when I talked about the Fed funds rate. Uh, <laughs> but it's but it, it, it's um. It's something I've got a bit more used to now, and it, it's great because I, you know, I'm not not saying I've got answers, but. We need to think about these questions and uh if that framework helps that's wonderful
0: um are you able to give us a peek into what you're working on now
1: yes yeah, so i have done a number of things so um i mean for me um I, I think one really important thing to do is to change the narrative uh, to sort of be more positive and of course the hundred year life was like that it's not that i want to be uh, pollyannish and say oh isn't everything about old age great um, but similarly if we only focus on the dismal negative things then we're never going to invest in our future and we don't realize this real change so i'm very much trying to change the narrative and i'm doing that in a number of ways uh, one is this book that i'm literally finishing in a couple of days which should be called evergreen i think uh, and it just says for the first time ever the younger middle age can expect to become the very old and we have to invest much more in our future and that's not about um, wheelchairs and walkers and care homes—it's about all of life, and it has radical changes for health system, education, uh, everything. So it's um, uh, there's that, and uh, I hope that will help to raise awareness of these trends. Then I'm also trying to get governments and firms to do something because I think what's really interesting in this space is that more and more people are waking up to it, and I find myself spending more and more time at conferences and events where the same things are being said: we've got to do something. So let's try and do it uh so uh at the business school i teach a course called the business of longevity which is trying to get a next generation of business leaders to recognize the business potential in helping us come up with new products and services that help us age well including the food industry and many others the pharma sector because you know business will be key for change and then i'm trying to get governments to wake up to this agenda and beginning to happen. I'm seeing in um, Japan and Singapore, even in the UK, a little bit the US, politicians go, oh, wow, you mean I could turn this bad news story into a good news story? You mean I can get more GDP out of it? So I'm trying to sort of get the economics area uh, more interested in this notion that actually, rather than aging, be just a negative thing, there's a positive potential. So in my kind of popular writing and talks and in my academic work, that's really what I'm trying to do.
0: That's brilliant, um, Andrew. Is there anything you want to leave us with today?
1: Um, no, I just think I say we have to. I, I, whether longevity is quite the right word, I think it's a better alternative to think about aging. We're very, very confused about the word aging, and aging takes us into, I think, very odd spaces. But for me, you know, the key thing to recognise is these longevity trends are such that whatever your age, you have more time ahead of you than anyone previous of your age. And that should be a good thing, but of course it comes with a responsibility to invest in that future. So uh I wish everyone the best of luck in investing in that in that future. Wonderful.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. I, I know you're a busy guy and um it's just a real pleasure to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you, David, and appreciate uh enjoy the chat and uh thank you for the uh, the good nice words about the book.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Wow, what a conversation. Um I love having super smart people on the show. Um, Really, it's such a delight. It is one of the great things of doing, you know, what we do here is I get like every week to talk to somebody who's, you know, a professor of economics at the London School of Business. Kind of awesome. Um, Let's get to Just Try This. This is the little thing that we do at the end of the show that, you know, may just help you live a little longer, a little happier. So this week on Just Try This, my suggestion is, the next time you go to the grocery store, go into the produce section and look around for something that maybe you've never eaten before or maybe it's been like a long time since you've eaten it and just grab it, put it in your basket, and then we get home, whatever it is, you know, I don't know, Belgian artichokes or whatever. I don't know if there is such a thing as a Belgian artichoke, but, um, you know, see if you can cook it. Because I think one of the things that happens, you know, with age is not only we tend to narrow the people that we hang out the stuff that we do we also sort of like narrow the way we eat and the kind of foods we eat and you know there's a really simple solution to that grab a novel fruit or vegetable take it home find out what it is and just try and cook it so let's try that this week i i tried um i i did a really interesting thing this week with this rainbow chard um with like garlic salt and um Steamed it with some olive oil And it actually worked out great It was really yum So this week Try this Go to the grocery store Get something new Bring it home Figure out how to cook it Thank you so much For joining us on the show today We really appreciate Your time And your attention And hey This is where you get to Guess what Leave us up to a Five star review Wherever you listen to this show Have you done that yet? Because we would really Appreciate this And you know Maybe there's somebody out there That you think Could enjoy the show why don't you just send them the link and, um, you know, maybe you can help them out. <laughs> um, next week, we've got an amazing, another amazing, super smart person. I just love talking to smart people. Next week, we've got um, the original caster, Faith Popcorn. Um, and we're going to talk about the future of aging and what that's going to be like. Um, I just, I can't wait for that. And so, everyone, have a wonderful week. If there's some reason that you would like to contact me directly, questions, comments, you just feel like reaching out to me, david at superage.com. Until then, have a great week. Take care now.